In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. The Christian life is a journey. For those baptized into Christ, our life in Him is very much a pilgrimage. Indeed, in the grand scheme of things, Jesus is leading us on an exodus. We're journeying out of this present world through the portal of death and into that place which our Lord prepares for us. It is our promised land, a place where we shall be raised anew in our bodies to live as Christ's blood-bought people. There we shall see him face to face, and he with the Father and the Holy Spirit shall be our God into the ages of ages. Dear friends, we have not yet even begun to fathom what heavenly splendor and unspeakable joys await us there, just beyond the horizon. Nevertheless, our life at present is a journey towards it. In faith, we press on toward what lies ahead. And within this grand overarching pilgrimage, of the, Christ, of the Christian life, together we make smaller mini-pilgrimages, if you will, all throughout the church year. The church's liturgical calendar, in a minor way, leads us on spiritual voyages as we journey ultimately towards our heavenly home. Within the last few months already, we've made our way to Bethlehem and celebrated the nativity of our Lord with the holy angels and the blessed virgin. You remember how we sojourned to the temple and saw Christ presented there, circumcised as he was on the eighth day. Last week, we ascended the Mount of Transfiguration and with Peter, James, and John beheld Christ's glory, both as true God and true man. And today, we descend the mountain and commence preparations for our annual spiritual pilgrimage towards Golgotha, the place of the skull. The time has come for us to journey once again to the place of our Lord's crucifixion, where the innocent Lamb of God made atonement for all our sins. In the church's liturgical calendar, today is known as Septuagesima, which in Latin means about 70 days. Believe it or not, we are now about 70 days from Good Friday, Holy Saturday, and of course, Easter. And while we've not yet entered into the liturgical season of Lent, we have now a few weeks time to prepare and to consider how we might make the best use of that time how we might use the coming season to deepen our Christian piety. For centuries, our spiritual fathers and mothers in the faith have seen Lent as a time of self-discipline and examination, leading to repentance, one of fasting and prayer and giving to the poor, one in which we Christians learn anew 
what it means to deny ourselves, take up our cross, and follow Jesus, even as our Lord bids us do. It would indeed be fruitful to take time in the coming weeks to ponder these things in your heart, to reflect on our great struggle against temptation and our sinful flesh. St. Paul had such thoughts. The blessed apostle, on the one hand, teaches everywhere that we sinners are justified by grace alone, through faith. Of that, there can be no doubt. But he also teaches, on the other hand, that the battle against our sinful passions must still be fought, that godly habits do not come so easily to us in this life. No one gains the strength of a bodybuilder after a single day in the gym. No one swims like Michael Phelps after a few laps in the pool. Dear friends, the art of denying oneself for the sake of God and neighbor must be learned. And how fitting it is for us to be practiced in this art. It is indeed fitting in this way for Christ to have disciplined disciples. And the season of Lent presents an opportunity to strive for these things. The hour for us to depart on our Lenten journey to a place, to the place of Christ's crucifixion will soon be upon us. And I pray you'll prepare accordingly, making the best use of the time until then. And I look forward to making the journey alongside you in faith, fully assured, fully confident that the joy of Easter will certainly follow. Indeed, this liturgical pilgrimage following Jesus to cross and tomb is in fact a portrait of our entire Christian life. By faith, we rightly follow our Lord out of this world through suffering and death and into his, into his eternal kingdom, into the restoration of all things. And in the Gospel of Matthew, immediately preceding our text for today, Jesus is asked by St. Peter how they shall be rewarded who have left everything to follow him. And here's how Christ our Lord responded. Everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters, or father, or mother, or children, or lands, for my name's sake, will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. He also adds this, but many who are first will be last, and the last will be first. What does our Lord mean? How is it that many who are first shall indeed be last? And how shall the last be first? Christ responds with a parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. Now in an ancient Middle Eastern setting, such a wealthy landowner would likely be well-known and respected in a community. 
people will know who he was, where he lived, and quite possibly that he would already have on hand all the help he really needed to tend his property. That such a master would personally go out into the market searching for laborers is telling in this regard. For sending any such steward, any steward that he had on hand would be well within his means. But here instead, the master himself freely goes searching for those whom he could bring into service in his vineyard. This noble man sought those upon whom he could have compassion, those to whom he could be generous with his great wealth, and yet still grant them the dignity of honest wages for honest labor, things that would make their wives and children at home proud of them. In that day and age, contrary to our own, this outcome was much to be preferred rather than bearing the shame of simply receiving a handout. And of course, the master of the vineyard knew this well. The master of the vineyard was a true philanthropist, one who loves mankind in the deepest, most comprehensive way. And there can be little doubt that those searching for work in the marketplace were overjoyed at seeing him. Just think how you'd feel if you knew the helplessness of being unemployed, seen publicly begging for a job, while all your family at home was counting on you to find work so they could eat. Nearly any job would suffice. Even the most menial and mundane job would be welcome, let alone working for a generous, wealthy landowner. And so, as Christ tells us, upon finding laborers early in the morning, the master graciously gives them their heart's desire. He receives them into his service and agrees to pay them a day's wage, a denarius, for their labor. But his goodness doesn't stop there. No, he takes it upon himself to go out and do this yet again for other desperate workers in the market whom he finds at the third hour. He sends them also into the vineyard and promises to pay them what is just. But the kindness and mercy of the master would by no means be spent at this point either. Out he goes yet again at the sixth hour and again at the ninth. But he would not be stopped even there. No, yet once more he goes into the market, even at the 11th hour, one hour before quitting time, and sent even those laborers into his vineyard promising to pay them what he knows is right. And joyfully, those, those laborers go, trusting the master's promise, utterly astonished at the otherworldly grace and goodness of this great man. And what an amazing master he is, dear friends, for no one could have anticipated what would happen next.
When the time for payment came, the master's orders stunned them all. It was those whom he found at the 11th hour, when all hope was nearly lost, who received their wages first. And after only one single hour of service in his vineyard, they are paid in full. The master pays them as if they'd been there all the day, faithfully serving from the very beginning. Who would ever dream of such a thing? Who in all of heaven and earth could fathom this great kindness that he had shown them? Down the line he went, one after another, dispensing a full day's payment to those who deserved it not. And finally, those hired first received this payment just the same. And as you might imagine, there was uproar. Those hired first grumbled against the master, complaining of injustice. They were received first, but they indeed became last, not least of which on account of their envy and their greed. They grumbled against their benefactor, complaining that he had made them equal to the latecomers who had borne neither the burden of the day nor the scorching heat upon their backs. And their case has a certain logic to it, does it not? There is a certain appeal. But where would any of them be had the master not first shown them grace? Where would they be had he not sought them out in the market? They have all received much from the master's hand. And why do they use this, his generosity, his unmerited favor, as the very grounds upon which they launch an attack? Why do they begrudge his lavish kindness? He has done them no wrong. Nor, for that matter, does Christ do any wrong in giving those whom he found at the 11th hour the full reward of salvation. It has cost no servant of Jesus Christ anything for him to treat these latecomers so kindly. But it has cost Jesus everything. Jesus has borne the cost. Jesus has borne the burden of his cross. He has suffered the scorching heat of his Father's wrath. And by his holy passion and death, Christ has atoned for all our sins. He has obtained the forgiveness of sins and salvation in abundance, which are his alone to give. And he will dispense these things freely to whomever he pleases. If he chooses to be generous to those whom he finds at the 11th hour, even tax collectors, prostitutes, and sinners who have labored but one hour in the vineyard. What humble servant could begrudge him for such a thing? Who could rightly despise a master like him?
Indeed, if any have toiled from the very first hour, if any have labored from the third or the sixth, if any have delayed until the ninth hour for service, if even at the eleventh hour you've come, give thanks, one and all, for the great goodness and kindness of our Lord. Rejoice, all of you, that you've been loved by so great a master, that Christ, the true lover of mankind and philanthropist without equal, has been generous to you in his mercy. Receive your reward with faith, by faith, with thanksgiving, and remember all that it cost him to lavish you so. He has labored mightily on your behalf. He has toiled with blood and sweat upon his brow and is pleased to reward his servants with salvation in full. To the same Jesus Christ be all the glory forever and ever. Amen.